the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. The gory days. It's 7.01 on Friday, the 13th of June. This is Big Dave, and it's time for you lazy bones to get out of bed. It's Black Cat Day in Crystal Lake. Who's that for? Welcome to the Gory Days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and early 1990s. Last week and the week before, we've kind of moved away from the 1990s. We did Signs from 2002. Last week we did, uh, <laughs> not Get Out, what was a, uh, the sound one where they can't talk and they have to be really quiet, uh, the John Krasinski one. God, we did it last week. Whatever. There's people screaming at their iPods right now, but uh, that was a really good one. But this week, we are going back to our roots with a 1980 classic. You've seen it on your iPods. The title, Friday the 13th from 1980. Really excited. But before that, listeners, you have no idea how excited I am to introduce today's guest. Her acting credits include Iron Man 3, CSI, Grey's Anatomy, Shades of Blue, and Gotham, just to name a few. Whew, let me catch my breath. I always start so hot as soon as I run in here and do these things. She recently received the Best Director nomination at the North Hollywood Film Festival, as well as the Best Actress Award at the New York City Horror Film Festival, the largest of the genre in New York, for the feature-length horror, feature horror film that she directed. The film is Don't Look. It comes out soon, and we'll mention some upcoming festivals where you can and should catch that. Listeners, it's my pleasure to introduce actor, producer, writer, director... Luciana Fallhaber. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Gory Days. How are you doing? Good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks oh, for having me. Fantastic. So, uh, we, we're just meeting for the first time, right? Yeah. And I have nothing up my sleeves? Nope. We're keeping <laughs> it fresh and we're keeping it on the spot. Fantastic. So, uh, you're not a native, though, of LA, right? Uh, where, where are you from? I am not. I was born and raised in Brazil, okay. in Rio, and then I moved to New York uh, on a college scholarship. So, I came out here to... To uh, New York? To New York, okay. yeah, to try my luck at the American dream. Fantastic. And so, Brazil, that means... How many languages do you speak? Um, I speak Portuguese and English fluently, and my Spanish is in the works. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That comes in handy here in California. Oh, absolutely. I remember being a kid and wanting to learn German, and my parents telling me, no, that's not going to get you anywhere unless you move. You got to stay here, and you got to learn Spanish, but um, maybe I'll get around to that. Uh, so you studied in New York, and when did you move out to LA? How recently? Um, I was in New York for almost 10 years, and wow. then I came out here... A bit less than five years ago. Okay. So I, and were you doing film in New York? I wasn't. I went to school uh, with a biology co um, college scholarship, and I did uh, research for a while. And then after I graduated, I needed a job. So I decided to become a teacher, and I taught for about five years. And I learned a lot during that time. Um, then during that time, I also started graduate school, and I went to Columbia grad school, and I started international politics. Um, and I'm still really involved in the activism, you know, part of, of life. I was going to ask, because it's kind of fiery out there right now with the government shutdown and with the teachers on strike and things like that. It's it's a volatile time right now. Yeah, and I think it's the right time to speak up and have a voice, um, you know, not only on your social media platforms, but go out there, wear the shirt and, you know, speak for the cause. Sure. Um, and during that time, it's when I started doing acting classes, I know, after, after work, part-time, just for fun and... 
And the next thing I know, I'm just quitting everything and becoming a full-time actor. And moving all the way out to LA from New York. Man, yeah. that's a huge move. Where did you end up? That was a few years later. I stayed out there and learned theater, you know, try to, to educate myself. I did a two-year conservatory program, which I think education is very important. And then after that, I came out here to really, when I felt ready, to really start and jump right into uh, into the business. That two-year conservatory program you mentioned was the Meisner Conservatory Program, correct? That's right. I started with Bill Esper out there. Yes, I understand you worked with Bill Esper, did some research, learned a lot from you coming in here. <laughs> to be completely honest, uh, I, um, I, I do research when my guests come in here and... Um, you are the largest person that I've ever had in here. The person with the most going for them, either currently or like the highest status. And so <laughs> um, there's a part of a recording that I'm going to put out with this where I realized who you were and thought like, I don't know what I thought when I Googled you. It was like your name came up right away. And uh, yeah, you're an Iron Man and you're in CSI and watching a reel. Like you're a real actor. You're in this for real. And uh, it's it's humbling a little bit because I'm still I'm, I'm a little green. I moved here from Irvine and I'm uh, still figuring out my niche in here. So you're an actor, but you're moving to directing and producing and you're kind of doing it all yourself. Yeah, I mean, I'm humbled by hearing you. So thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I, I don't consider myself a celebrity, but um, yeah, I, I definitely work hard and I believe in the work and mm -hmm. that's why I'm an actor, you know. I think fame and, and success can't come with the work. So I definitely focus on that. Um, but um, I, this whole acting, writing, directing started because I wanted an opportunity. My partner Javier and I, um, Javier e. Gomez, he's Puerto Rican. We met in New York at our acting program. And he recruited me as a producer. You know, I always joke, I tell people the story of how he asked me out to dinner. We've been partnered up as, uh, as acting partners throughout the years. And um, when we graduated, he invited me out to dinner. He's like, I have a proposition for you. And I was like, this is really weird. Yeah. So, <laughs> Interesting uh, phrasing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right. So we sat at this place, Cafe Morgador, which we still enjoy. And uh, he just slid over like this envelope across the table. Like, I want you to take a look at this. And I was like what the hell's going on? Like, is this like, <laughs> felt Some a little bit like a, a drug deal. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what is <laughs> happening? So I, I opened up and it was a play. It was a, a Puerto Rican play. And he's like, I think you were producer and I think we should produce this together. And at the time I remember saying, I don't know. I don't think it's for me. Let me think about it. And I kind of went in like, oh, I guess I'll try it this time. And see what do you how, got to lose? Yeah. And see how that, you know, goes. And we did a, we did a uh, off Broadway show. It was, um, in partnership with Teatro Yati out there and um, we had the New York Times come out and it was the first time they came out for a, for a showcase code for, for equity so we felt really honored um, and their review wasn't the best but it said <sighs> something like these kids are really brave and we're like well there you go we'll, we'll take that we definitely are brave and um, you know we did we did it best we could with what we had and from that moment on like we just began our own partnership we've been working together for 10 years now in our production company uh, Don't Look is our first feature film, and we did a, a short before that. Um, so, you know, from that, we were like, we needed opportunities as Latinos. You know, we weren't getting seen for parts that we believe were, were part of our experience as Latino Americans. And, um, you know, there's just so many prostitute drug dealer roles you can audition for. So... 
you know, especially when he's an educated Latino and I'm an educated Latina and everybody around us is of the same level. So we're like, why, why are we not listening to those stories? Why are we not, you know, going out for doctors and, and journalists and engineers? Like why is still so um, old fashioned in the perception of our culture? So we started writing in that purpose. We wanted to, um, in, really embody roles that we were proud of and that weren't out there for us at the time. So that's how we started. That's amazing. So is the Puerto Rican theater circuit still happening? Is he Does he still write uh, plays or has he pretty much moved on? You said you've been working together for 10 years now. I imagine he doesn't much have time for theater. He's moving away from film or to film. Well, it would do, you know, acting is acting. So mm-hmm. we do, we do what the heart calls for the project. Oh, so, okay. um, he didn't write the play that we directed that, oh, okay. and, and acted in. He actually, um, it was a Puerto Rican playwright and he translated it and he's done that for a few different, uh, works of art. Oh, great. Uh, he's really good at languages, you know, he's a journalist. So, um, that's how that project came about. And, um, but we still travel in the theater world. He's a, a musical theater professional he's incredibly versed sings in three different languages he sings in portuguese spanish english and italian wow like yeah he's kind of romance languages exactly (laughs) well if you meet him you'll see that that makes a lot of sense okay he's very romantic was he in don't look is it the gentleman okay i thought so i thought the name sounded familiar yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. he was great which is my favorite character of of the entire film so um i always tell him i'm like we cut the movie in a way that you stole the show because i really think that his character is the most lovable, caring character. He definitely pops on screen. Um, so do you find people are responding to the, I guess, mission statement that you're setting out to get uh, your stories represented in a way that isn't stereotypical? Are people recognizing what you're doing? And yeah, have you found, you know, it's all about opportunities, all about having that door open. So don't look was a calling card. We wanted to, we had very little monies. We did a Kickstarter campaign. Everything else we joke is like, you know, our rent money, whenever we had, and we could put into the film, Um, And we made miracles with what we had. So Don't Look really was a calling card saying, look, we can make things. We can make things happen. Give us some money. Believe in us. So from there, we've written a TV show called Scooped. And it's about, yeah, it's about a Latino uh, coming of age kid who gets his first job at a dying newspaper in New York. And it's based on Javier's true life story. Okay. Um, And that's where he met Luis Miranda, which is... uh, Linda Manuel's dad, and he still works with them. Um, so it's interesting how that experience nowadays for us is like still so recent. You know, there was a Russian spy in the room at the time that was his mentor. Wow. You know, look at where we are again, like talking about yeah, Russians. Yeah, yeah. So we created that show and we've been pitching and pushing it out, you know, around town. And trying oh, so to you filmed the made. pilot already and everything? We didn't film it. We're trying okay. to raise the money. Okay. Yeah. And yes. then from there, we did another pilot pitch, which we did shoot called House Sitting. Uh, we're in the process of editing. And that's about a woman who has her heart broken out of New York. Um, you know, she's a nurse and, mar- you know, expecting to marry this doctor just to turn out not exactly like that. So she decides to just change up, uproot her life and change. And you've and been doing all of this in-house just by this the two of you? Or have you expanded your production operation? Well, I can never say it's just the two of us. It does take a village to do anything. And sure. my advice to anyone starting is know who your friends are and stick close together and partner and, and collaborate and help each other as much as you can. So Javier is definitely my home base. Like we, you know, we work together really well. We complement each other. Um, and 
people can come and go, but we're still going to be together. So that's our, our attitude towards production and the work we do together. Um, that said, we are always looking for partners and we're always out there. Um, for Don't Look, we had incredible people that you know came through and helped us finish. We also had a lot of shitty people that we had to fire and fight you know a lot of people trying to steal the money that we were able to put together oh my god oh yeah i mean there's a lot of stories of of making your first film that you know not going to film school comes with comes with a price um so we learned a lot through that experience so our goal is really to meet partners who see things how we see that what matters is the work and what we're trying to do is something that speaks not only to us but to a generation yeah you know that can in the future feel proud of what we've made. So collaboration is absolutely important. And I want to know what you can speak to as far as people like me or anyone who's listening out there who also didn't go to film school and feels daunted by the lack of education, the lack of, you know, the jargon and uh, the different responsibilities between everybody on set and understanding that. And uh, how have you and what can you speak toward to navigating that without going to film school and just having... uh, one side of the experience, the in front of the camera. Well, I will say this. The internet teaches you anything you need to learn. Oh, yeah. So I will say if you don't have the opportunity, and film school is expensive. You yes. know, it really is. For that much money, you can make two films, three films, you know, uh, and learn on the spot. But with that said, like I, like I said before, like it comes with a price. We, we lost money at different places. You know, we maybe worked with people we wouldn't have if we've had the experience of film school because we've been able to spot those problems early on versus later down the line. But, um, you know, that said, I, I much rather put my money into going out there and learning by doing than sitting in a classroom and, you know, once I finish, have all this debt and then try to figure out how to get a job in the industry. So I say go on the Internet, search as much as you can, learn, be self-taught, like learn, learn as much as you can. Uh, again, with connections with your relationships, like we raised our money with our friends and family to do this film. You know, Kickstarter is still out there, but it's not Oh, necessary. you did Kickstarter? Yeah, we did Kickstarter. There's a, a, many different pa- platforms now for crowdfunding, but you can just go straight to your family and friends and say, hey, it's my birthday. What I want for my birthday is I want to make this happen. Yeah. So can each one of you give me a little bit and then I can go do it, you know? Um, and then also look for people who know what they're doing. Reach out, email. Like I, I met a lot of directors when we were making Don't Look. I asked a lot of their experiences and, and opinions and what worked for them, what didn't work for them, and they were all receptive to talking to me. Uh, you know, Mike Flanagan, who's done a lot of great horror, who is mm. super successful now. Like he was, when we met, was just when he was about to break. And um, man, we had a, a talk over a drink at, a, at the Arclight waiting to see a movie. And I remember thinking, this was such a valuable time. Like, thank you just yeah. for sitting and talking to me for an hour about being a director of a, of a low budget horror film and how to make that as successful as possible. So my advice is when you meet someone that speaks to you, that is available or, you know, there's nothing wrong to say, hey, I have some questions. Can I talk to you for like 10 minutes? Yeah. And most people are, are more than willing to give you that time. And so what I hear from that is don't wait that the best way to demonstrate to somebody that you know what you're doing is to do it. 
over and over and over. And if the first one doesn't work out, you'll learn something from it and you'll learn something from that. The first one will never work out. Yeah. Just just expect that, you know. And I, I listen to and I read a lot of different directors. Like Hitchcock never went to film school, you know. He yeah. used to shoot with, with skateboards and different things, whatever he could find. Like he would find a way to work that into making something different. And he was working with film, physical film. We've come so far in technology that we now have like better cameras than he ever could have had in our pockets. And people are able to make things and do make things. I just had to put it on silent, I realized. <laughs> people do make things every day with just like, you know, in their house. And people do these amazing things on YouTube. And I remember some of the Vine videos that people would create with just a few seconds of footage. Uh, it, yeah, yeah. So what I hear right, is so don't my, wait. No, there is no waiting. Yeah. If you're going to sit and wait, trust me, 10 other people are going to be way ahead of you in five minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, they're you're only, one of them. <laughs> well, absolutely. Because I learned that it doesn't matter how much talent you have and how serious you are about what you do. No one is going to give you an opportunity. They right. just won't until you go out there and you do it and you say, I'm going to do it with or without you. And when the moment they, they learn that, most of the time, they're like, all right, let me take a look at what you're doing. You know, Lena Waithe is somebody else that I admire a lot. I met her before she broke out and, you know, watching her grow and bring the people that have been with her through the entire process to see everybody succeed. It's incredible. It's an incredible lesson. It's different in Brazil because... Um I think it's different everywhere. I think even in America, if people haven't gone to a place, you know, where they hope to make their dreams come true, they truly don't understand. And that could be anywhere. It could be a stockbroker in New York or an actor in LA or, you know, the best cattle rancher in Utah. Who knows? But if you're trying to break into a business and you are, um, you know, educating yourself and learning and trying, I think it's hard for people outside of that realm understand what you're doing. Um, they respect it and a lot of times they hate it because they wish I was closer um, yeah, do your parents really, do they like understand what you're doing? Do they appreciate? I don't think they did until the first time they saw me out there on, on either TV or film. The first time they came out to see me on the movies were Iron Man 3 and, you know, everybody mm -hmm. was so excited. They watched them film like three times. And it was, it was, you know, I was too. It was great. I didn't tell a lot of my friends, you know, I told one friend and I told them to bring everybody else to see the film. And halfway through the film, if you've seen it, I kind of pop out to, you know, from, from, from the covers yes, and everybody just kind of screamed because they're like, oh my God, nobody knew it was, it was kind of a nice prank. Um, and I'm pretty sure Ben Kingsley gives you a name, but you're credited as Mandarin Girl Number One. That's a shame. That's I know, a real Shane shame. Black. What's with that? <laughs> um, he calls yes. you like Veronica, I think. Nessie. Or Nessie. Oh, okay. Yeah, Vanessa. It's Vanessa, like Nessie. That's it. Nessie. Uh, he throws me a cookie. Um, it's funny story too because he's yeah, married that... to a Brazilian woman, so oh. we had definitely some uh, things to talk about during set. That's fun. Uh, yes, he's again. He's such a, an amazing an actor, Academy Award winner, and he's such a professional. You know, it was amazing to work with him and to watch him work. And again, somebody who is really about the work. You know, he was on time. He was respectful, and he was you know pleasant to everybody. And it's just watching that from somebody so successful is definitely like, yeah, yeah. I want to be like that. You so know? over everything that you've done, your whole career and everything that uh, you're uh, proud of, what's the best thing you've learned? What's the biggest thing that you take away that you tried to hold on to that is 
I mean, it's it's cliche, but the end of the day, That's the industry. <laughs> yeah, the end of the day is like just don't give up because there's gonna be ups and they're gonna be downs. You know, I remember when I got my first TV co-star, which was CSI, and I was like, now, now I'm, it's gonna happen. Now it's gonna be amazing, and I'm gonna get all these jobs. I think it was like another year before I booked something else. You know, so and I remember my one of my friends telling me, he's like, oh honey, yeah, it's not like that. Like good luck. Um, but you know, that's the truth. It's just like understanding that. It is, it is a roller coaster and you have to stick with it. And, you know, 2016, 2015 were really difficult years for me. Um, and last year was, it was just different. You know, it was a year that um, doors opened and, and people were interested in what I had to say. So you, you just don't know. Yeah. No, this didn't fall into your lap. You worked hard for this and it's working out. And I, I wish you the best. I really hope that everything goes well for you. And when does Don't Look uh, release? It's in May. Yes, Don't Look is coming out uh, later this year. We're waiting to hear the official uh, from the distributor. We're working with Wild Eye releasing out of New York. They okay. do a lot of horror. They're fantastic. And um, um, yeah, we have some uh, fun stuff coming up for you guys. But we're going to be at the uh, Latino Atlanta Latino Film Festival in April of this year. And we're going to be at the Future Femme Film Festival also later this year. Um, yeah, dates are a bit pending. We're waiting to hear from everyone um, and we're happy to uh, tell everybody. So check us out at don'tlookthemovie.com or our social media. Uh, Instagram is at don'tlookthemovie. And where can people find you online, your work, or uh, if they're interested in reaching out to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm all over. Um, not Twitter very much, but um, I'm on, uh, you know, I have a Facebook page. You're welcome to go follow me and like send me a message through that. Um, you can go to my Instagram. I always say don't inbox me because I get a lot of that and there's different ways and I don't really look. So if you want to talk to me, post on a picture and say, hey, I have a question about whatever. Hey, and, and then we can start find a way to communicate. Um, I also have an email available on my Instagram that I do check. So you can send an email in an email that way. And they can just look your name up on Instagram or yeah, anything like that. That's yep. Luciana Fauhaber official. Okay. Um, and you'll see that's my actual page. That's the one with the with the blue check. And uh, that's me. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Well, coming up after the break, more Luciana Fallhaber, more the gory days. And we'll be talking about our movie Friday the 13th when we come back. The gory days. Welcome back to the gory days. That, of course, was abject silence with nothing else going on. Today's movie is final. Uh, it's Friday the 13th from 1980. If you haven't seen this movie, pause your podcast right now and go watch it. Wasn't that great? In case you didn't have the patience to go and watch it right this second, we'll go over a quick synopsis. A group of camp counselors are stalked and murdered by an unknown assailant while trying to reopen a summer camp, which years before was the site of a child's drowning. So Friday the 13th released in Friday, May 9th, 1980, very similar to your May release, um, across the United States, nationwide, distributed by Paramount Pictures. It earned $5,816,000 in its opening weekend and finally grossed $59 million. This was an independent horror film, just like Don't Look, that somehow was able to branch out nationwide and then internationally and bring almost $60 million, $1980. That's about $200 million, 2018, 2019 dollars now. 
Man, I could use some of that money. Wouldn't that be insane? Yeah. <laughs> Guys, watch my movie too. Let's let's make that happen. <laughs> um, it was released internationally, which is really unusual for independent films, especially with no-name actors and stuff in it. Um, but it ended up being the highest grossing film of the entire Friday the 13th franchise. No Friday the 13th movie since this one has made more money. So that's pretty cool. Um, it was up against movies like The Shining, Dress to Kill, and The Fog at the time when uh, it came out. and ended up being the 18th highest grossing film of 1980. I don't know why I write that down. It seems interesting. Um, so the screenplay was written in uh, 1979 by Victor Miller, who... Um, I don't know what else he's written, but... Uh, the uh, director was Sean S. Cunningham, who had most recently worked with Wes Craven on the 1979 film Last House on the Left. Have you seen the posters for this uh, film? Yeah. I mean, when you Google it, I mean, everything comes up. Yeah. It's... The, the, the funny anecdote is that, you know, we growing up in Brazil before the internet, everything came to us about 10 years later. So oh. even though Friday the 13th was an 80s movie, to us growing up, it was a 90s movie. Interesting. Which was very curious when I came and moved to America because we're talking about like Pretty in Pink and other, other you know, Breakfast Club. I'm like, oh, that's a great 90s movie. And like, that's not a 90s movie. There's an 80s. I'm like, no, but I saw it. I was so confused. <laughs> so it took a second for me to realize that like because we didn't have the internet, things took so long to get down to Brazil and I'm sure other countries, that some of that cultural things, which I consider the 90s, it's the 80s. Here. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so when did you see this? You saw it in theaters? Um, I saw it when I was a child. Yeah? I have an older sister um, and she really loved How old horror. How were you? Well, let's not talk about those lady things. <laughs> oh, <they> sorry. <laughs> um, but I have an older sister, and she and her friends loved horror movies. And but for some reason, where we lived, it was an empty apartment, okay. in, in like in the building. And I, I think I guess we knew who belonged to because I remember all of us kids like gathering there with pillows and like kind of like a slumber party. And but just to watch horror movies, to watch horror movies <laughs> back to back all night. Oh and, wow! You know, Friday the Thirteenth was one of them. Poltergeist was some another That's a one that yeah, and then one through four. There was one night that was a poltergeist like marathon. marathon yeah, yeah. So you know, like Damien, like there's so many of those. Oh movies. yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, it's kind of how my my interest for horror sparked. I just I was terrified of them. I was afraid of the gremlins. So you know how like much of a, of a wuss I was as a child. But I wanted to be cool and I wanted to hang out with the older kids. You know, so um, this was one of those movies. Like I my totally parents would have never let me go to the theater to watch this. So uh, is that kind of like how it started? This was the first movie you saw that got you started into horror. Yeah, it was. Wow. I mean, I couldn't say what was the first, but it was definitely. I guess that's hard to say, yeah. yeah, it was. It was definitely within that marathon period um and for Javier it was similar you know he grew up in Puerto Rico and horror movies was the way to escape and have an exciting time and see some skin and you know we we were all into that exploration time of life well that's what I love about horror is unlike any genre it plays with things like uh it, it, it casts actors who are no names because they're probably going to die in you know horrific ways. So it's a great way for a lot of actors to get their first start. Um, and it deals with themes like how far will a father go to protect his children or how, uh, how much is one willing to sacrifice to survive or things like that that make us uh, look to, oh, I would do that in that situation or, oh, I would do this and I would survive. And that's stupid that they're doing. It makes us like think of the best version of ourselves. 
Yeah, and fear is an universal feeling, you know. It's something that anybody can relate to, and it does well internationally because there's a lot of action. Yeah, yeah. Um, and fear is universal. It it goes against, uh, I mean, it go, goes through language barriers and uh, philosophies. Everyone is afraid of something, and the more universal the fear, usually the better the movie. Yeah, and it's kind of a landmark now to have not unknown actors because if you do have known actors, you already expect them not to die yes exactly so it's kind of a bit of a giveaway it's so, like psycho uh alfred hitchcock when you cast a big name and then it, she gets killed halfway through the movie spoiler alert for a 60 year old movie um <laughs> it's a big shock because you thought that's the big name right so you know it became more acceptable to have people that are not known it's better for the film because you're not following a person you're following the story mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's still great movies out there with plenty of well-known actors who do, that do very well. So, and just from like a screen, from a plot standpoint, they break barriers and challenge tropes. A lot of the times in movies, children are safe. And anytime you see a kid like, oh, something's falling, someone's going to run by and push them out of the way at the last second. Not in a horror movie. (laughs) That kid might die. And every time it happens, it's like, oh man, that raises the stakes. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, so I can't really tell how old the people in this movie are supposed to be. I think they're adults, but they certainly act like a bunch of horny teens. And they all have (laughs) wine and like vodka and stuff, I think, at some point. So I I, I don't know how old these these people are. But um, the poster. So you remember the poster. It's that silhouette of uh, the like, I guess it's supposed to look like a chalk drawing of, you know, somebody who died. But then superimposed is uh, the Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, I was interested to find out that that was designed by Alex Ebel to promote the U.S.'s film release, but it was marketed along with the trailers as a lighthearted, youth-oriented horror film. That's kind of like a comedy, literally to draw in that demographic of like young kids and stuff like that. So this movie had a ton of taglines. I'm just going to go through some of them. I'm not going to read all of them, but some of my favorites were, On Friday the 13th, they begin to die horribly, one by one. And... Lucky 13? I think not. (laughs) Uh, Fridays will never be the same again. They were warned. They were doomed. And on Friday the 13th, nothing will save them. These old horror movies have a great way because posters these days, it's different. A movie poster. I don't know. Did you do you do uh, movie posters and marketing for your film? Did that was that something you had to look into? We had a lot of different versions of uh, placeholder images, and we just got from our distributor our new poster, and we're so excited to share. We're not allowed to share it yet, but um, can't wait to see it. Oh my god, we I I can't wait to share it. We're so excited. So um, yeah, and I think images, especially in such a visual world that we live in, they're very important. Yes. Um, So as I understand it, uh, a movie will typically have two to three uh, main posters. There's the teaser that typically shows as little as possible and just a title. There's the main poster that comes out once everyone's familiar. There's a few character posters, maybe if it's a multi, you know, big thing. Um, And then there's the final one that usually has like a big splash of all the characters superimposed, an enormous Robert Downey Jr., a teeny tiny Ben Kingsley, and things (laughs) like that. Um, For this one, though, as far as I know, it was just that one poster. And so people, uh, like you say, a, a picture says a thousand words. 
anywhere different times you know mm-hmm. nowadays we all know the power of marketing that's it too is like back then you couldn't look this up you couldn't go oh friday the 13th i'm gonna go home and read a bunch of articles about it and go on reddit and see what people are talking there was nothing there was just ooh, what is that yeah i was i was watching a documentary recently about this couple who lived in hollywood and she was what they called a film researcher ooh. which i've never heard about but basically was a library where filmmakers could go and research things for their film so if you're making a movie about a campground in the 80s like she would have books and pictures of what would that look like um and it's interesting because it never occurred to me i was like now we just google it it's on the internet it's everywhere but at the time i'm like okay if you're shooting you're making a movie like the like i don't know about about the third reich or something you'd have to go to the library yeah where do you go (laughs) research those things so they are accurate with the time and it was like oh my god it's it's such it's so different now we have everything at our fingertips that would be redundant there's no reason for that building to exist anymore it's all on wikipedia oh that's a shame (laughs) oh man uh yeah that would be cool to have a place like that uh, if only just for like a hub for collaborators to think like, oh, well, I know everyone here is working on something I'm working on. Right. I bet that's what it's like to be in film school when you go to the library and things well, like probably. that. Well, probably. And then they become <laughs> your peers later. Yeah, so. exactly. And yeah, like Steven Spielberg ends up being friends with George Lucas and then psh, the rest is history. So as you may or may not know, this movie kind of gave a birth to the subgenre that is slasher films. Up until now, we had had horror films, but most of them were like Poltergeist or um, Last House on the Left or the Amityville Horror, where it was ghosts or um, just supernatural of some kind. This, along with Halloween and to a lesser extent... um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of gave birth to this slasher, individual, one memorable character that people will see on a poster and go, oh, it's that one. Um, so, yeah, Jason, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, uh, Chucky comes a little bit later in 1988, but uh, all of these kind of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Leatherface, like anytime you see the you know horror icons of the 80s, Jason Voorhees is up there. Ironically, Jason isn't in this movie very much. Uh, I remember learning this as a kid. Uh, I was always into horror movies, and I remember learning this trivia fact was like, oh, actually, Jason isn't in the first movie. He doesn't show up until the second. The first movie is Pamela Voorhees. Um, Spoiler alert, we're going to get into that. But yes, the killer in this movie is the mother, which brings up a whole swath of different themes and gender presuppositions. But before we get into that, this movie spawned uh, 10 sequels. 10 Friday the 13th sequels. They're finally done as far as I know, but there was this one, part two, Friday the 13th, part three, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, a new beginning, part six, Jason lives, part seven, the new blood, my favorite, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, Uh, Jason goes to hell, the final Friday, Jason X, which ironically is the 10th film in the genre, so the... uh, so Jason X kind of has a play on words for also being the Roman numeral 10. Freddy versus Jason, the phoned in, <laughs> whoever wins, we lose. Did you ever see that one? Freddy versus no, Jason? No, I, oh, I kind of, after, after a certain number, I was like, time for a new. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, the 2009 remake, Friday the 13th, which when you said we were watching Friday the 13th, I wasn't sure which one you meant. And I thought for a second, oh, maybe I'll just watch both just in case. I'm yeah, glad I, I asked. I'm not a, I'm not fan of remakes you know i feel Hmm. like you you, there's a lot of messing up with classics these days there's too many people out there with original stories for us to be relegated to sequel after sequel after remake um and some of these like now we're getting remakes of sequels like the new halloween where it's supposed to be a sequel of the original but it's 
kind of a reboot. So weird. Um, and Disney is taking the baton with this. Aladdin, Mulan, Dumbo, all of these live action, Lion King, all of these live action remakes of the things that we find nostalgic. Nostalgia makes money. And it makes sense from a studio executive standpoint. If someone was breathing down your back saying, we need to make money this summer, and you had a choice between a no-name script with a good idea or another comic book movie, then the easy decision is the comic book movie because it's going to make more money or the sequel or, you know, people are afraid to take chances. And so it's so great when people like you and John Krasinski and these people can come up out of the woodwork, present a brand new idea, and people love it. The unfortunate part is that other people will think, oh, now we can make sequels of that, and that'll be the next Purge franchise. Ugh. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, and again, it's all about access. You know, Kaczynski can't make anything he wants because he is recognizable, and he's had a certain amount of connections in the industry. Yeah. So, you know, it's all, it's all kind of connected. Uh, so this movie takes place, it's Camp Crystal Lake, which apparently is a real place. It's not called Camp Crystal Lake, but it's a Boy Scout uh, lake that is still open and still gives tours. And you can go there in Connecticut or in Pennsylvania, take a tour of a bunch of filming locations and get memorabilia from the movie. That's pretty cool. But the story, so let's break it down. The story of Friday the 13th is way back in 1957, Jason drowned. Pamela Voorhees was a chef working at Camp Crystal Lake and her... Uh, developmentally disabled son, Jason, uh, who looks, we only get like one good shot of him, but he looks like he's got hydrocephalus, like his head is overexpanded and everything. He's, he he needs help. And uh, so one day when Pamela Voorhees was cooking, doing her job, I don't remember, uh, the camp counselors who were supposed to be watching Jason as he was swimming in the lake were having sex. They were getting. Uh, they were little, getting busy. Yeah, they were getting busy, and Pamela Voorhees blames them because Jason drowned that day, and they weren't watching him. They were off having sex. So her whole modus operandi is to kill horny camp counselors to punish them for the death of her son thirty years ago, because this takes place. It's technically 1980 because it says the present. I love it when we say the present because when you saw it, it was the 90s. Exactly. So that was the present. Um, but uh, it takes place in 1988. Uh, and those opening credits is where we get that first uh, sound cue from the composer, whose name I will get to a little bit later, that <laughs> everybody recognizes that from uh Friday the 13th as being like, like oh, that's the Jason sound. Whenever he's walking around parodies, I've always seen it. So I... And apparently that is supposed to be a reference to Jason saying, kill, 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 ma, ma, ma. Uh, the head, the voice that Pamela Voorhees has going through her head. Um, really weird. So essentially we've got our main characters, Annie. I've got them all here. Marcy, Ned, Jack, Bill and Brenda. These are the kids that are working for Steve Christie along with Alice at Camp Crystal Lake, a.k.a. Camp Blood. That's opening up for another year of camp coming up. So they're supposed to be up there getting ready for the incoming students. Marcy, Jack, and Ned. Jack played by Kevin Bacon in his uh, first role, which I thought was fun. You get to see him in a Speedo at one point, which was a treat. Our friends, and they're coming up together where they meet uh, Steve Christie, his assistant slash lover, Alice. <laughs> and they're like 20 years difference, and that's pretty weird. We see... Yeah, because it doesn't happen now. 
<laughs> yeah, that's totally true. But um, Steve, the first time we see him, there's some uh, wonderful... So I love to point to um, body objectification in both senses. So there's lots of female body objectification in this movie easily. We get like some uh, full-on nudity. But uh, Steve Christie, the first time we see him, he's in short shorts and he's wearing nothing. And he's like chopping that wood. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, why don't we have that anymore? Let's bring back short shorts from the 80s. I like it. I think that's <laughs> equality right there. Exactly. Like, do you remember like basketball shorts used to be so skimpy and tiny? Let's bring those back. Yeah, I'm definitely not a fan of the long ones. <laughs> um, so uh, Ned Christie, there's, I also wrote down the moments of harassment here because there's a lot of it. The um, first character that we meet who is, I thought it was our hero. And I feel like it's a Hitchcockian uh, like play on on the on the genre exactly yeah, yeah so. because we introduce andy annie and she talks to a dog and it's like oh we like her and she's so happy-go-lucky and everything's going great for her and she goes to the diner and everyone looks at her weird when she says camp crystal lake but that doesn't phase her and she's super great she's the first death well after the 1958 deaths well um, she doesn't even get there which is kind of no, sad it's yeah sad. she keeps asking people the first person she asks is uh enos and he drives her like halfway i guess and he's like what i like about that character is that she takes a ride from a oil tank person yes. like some guy who normally in the real world you'd never take a ride from new no. but then later on you find out that the killer is a woman and she took mm-hmm. a ride from a nice lady and then ends up murdered but what i don't understand is like she wasn't even having sex all she talked about is how excited she was about like helping kids and how she was meant to work with kids that's a great point because this movie like i said in the beginning it tries to hold this like moral thing over everyone's head like ooh, you shouldn't have sex or else someone's gonna kill you there's only two people in this movie, that ha- there's two couples that have sex and are punished for it. Otherwise, right. everyone else is just killed. Yeah, uh, they're just like brushing their teeth. And then it's like, oh my God, who are you? But, but I, it's interesting too. I, like, I really like the way they use uh, the mystery part of it. And yes, try to the point of view. some of that. And it's like you only see how scared they are. And you don't ever see a hand or anything. So you don't know who the killer really is. You but you assume see... it's a man the whole time. And they do that on purpose. It's really fun. Well, I think that assumption comes from, you know, women, the feeling that women are more nurturing. Absolutely. And I don't think that that's something that the film did successfully. I think they just played on our own preconceptions. Okay. Um, which is like, oh, if it's bad, it's probably a man. Um, Especially when they set it up that, like, Ralph is this guy that they need to watch out for. They right. kind of feed, like, ooh, is the Ralph the killer? Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, And then he's in the pantry at some point for no reason. <laughs> um, and then just rides away on his bike and they let him go. But, um, no, you're right. That's interesting. Because um, the only glimpses we see are shots from the killer's perspective, right. chasing Annie or chasing Brenda or things like that. Um, and I think the most we get is maybe her shoes. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing. Women wear shoes. Why can't right. women wear shoes? Why can't women be killers? Um, especially old women. So and think about it. Like that's one of the first films of the genre, and it was already breaking grounds, you know, mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. But then, if you think about it too, there's like a whole sequence of films where women are kind of crazy and, and murderous. Oh yeah, I, one of the ones that I think of is one that came pretty soon after this and followed the the trope is Sleepaway Camp. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with that one? Yeah. yeah, yeah, which kind of undoes all of the good that this movie could have done. But um, so uh, Pamela Voorhees kills 11 people throughout the movie. She kills uh, the two counselors at the beginning. She kills Annie by slitting her throat in the forest. I loved her. I really wanted her to... But it was a great kill. Oh, my God. She is really good. I mean, thinking that this is the 80s and the the kind of effects that they Mm -hmm. had. The throat cut? 
That was great. And all of the blood. Yeah, honestly, all of the effects in here, they were done by uh, Tom Savini, the uh, motion, uh, the uh, visual effects designer. And yeah, that, the arrows um, uh, going through Bill when he's up against the door, the blood going through oh, Jack's yeah. net, like that the bubbles. Great. Super gross. Um, oh, the axe in uh, What's Your Face? Like yeah. that. Yeah, that's super great. Um, there's, uh, okay, so the one person I want to make sure I give a big shout out to is Adrian King, the actress who played Alice. She's amazing. She carries the last, like, third of this movie when all of her friends are already dead. And she's, there's that one moment where Brenda's body, like, is hurled through the window. window. And there's just this long shot. It's just one shot of her, like, just walking from the window to the other side of the room, staring at her friend's body, and then bolting out of there. And I thought, like, God, that's, she's really good. I was interested to hear that originally they planned for her character to be kind of like Laurie Strode in Halloween and be reoccurring, but she was getting stalked by fans. And Ooh. so she said, I don't want to be part of these movies anymore. Like, this is ruining my life. So, And obviously that was before social media. Yeah. Now they'd be like, yes, make me famous. That's such a different time. It's really different. Um, yeah, like, who knows, like, how bad it must have got that she didn't want to do this thing that could have made her a millionaire. Like when it yeah. was her personal safety. But then exactly. You have yeah. to think about happiness. Like, you know, do you want to live like that? You have to think about surviving. Like, yeah, this guy could, whoever it was, it could have been a woman. Could have been, yeah. So exactly. that's something I'm trying to break, honestly. Like I, I don't, I, I can't call myself a feminist, but I try to recognize, especially in this podcast, the, the, the moments when movies do challenge the patriarchy and challenge those presuppositions um, and quite honestly prejudices. Uh, and so that's why I like this movie for objectifying the men and the women. To be fair, you can't objectify the men as much as you do the women simply because of, you know, censorship rules. Um, right. But uh, like, um, well, yeah. Uh, let's see what happens. Oh, we skipped some things, but I feel like... Oh, the other thing I want to mention is that barricade scene. Um, once, uh, I, I don't remember who the final person who dies that makes uh, Alice, like, snap. But she goes inside and she starts barricading the house up. And she starts using ropes and she starts pushing things. And a lot of the times in movies when people do that and they go to barricade something, it's always, like, it's always the same thing. It's always, like, a piece of wood that they nail to a door that opens out or uh, <laughs> something silly. I remember just uh, sitting there and thinking... This, that, that looks like it's going to hold. She looks pretty smart. And like, it's just like from a, from a like actor standpoint, the idea of having to secure the door for real and actually make it so like this, no one's going to get through here. It's, she did a good job. It was very... And as an actor, that's a gift. Yeah. You know, you actually, action is pretty part of acting. Act, you know, acting is action. It's not talking. So when you have something that is real, that you're in the moment doing, I always joke around. I'm like, when you walk into a set, it's so real. You know, the way that they build it for TV and yes. film, it's so incredibly real that if you can't really get into the moment, I'm like, just look around. So in a sense, like when you feel like th that there is a sense of danger and you have to physically barricade yourself, I mean, that's a gift for an actor. Have you ever had to work with green screens and stuff? Because that's something I've understood is much harder because you don't little. have the world yeah very little i don't have a lot of experience with the green screen um for our film we tried very much to do everything as practical as possible good good um because i think it helps everyone it helps in post it helps the actors you know it makes it all more of a real experience sure and i apologize for not roping the don't look back in but i'm hesitant on what i'm allowed to say and what i what i can so please feel free to uh 
Because you mentioned that um, this was an inspiration for your movie. And so uh, I read that you had a story credit or a writing credit. Uh, yeah. how, how much did you contribute to the original? So the story of Don't Look was kind of sparked by uh, one of our producer's family's story. Uh, one Thanksgiving I spent with them, you know, and they are a very all-American family from Pennsylvania, which is the home of horror. And, you know, during Thanksgiving they mentioned, you know, briefly the story of some relative that one day was found dead in the garage and no one really called the police or questioned and they just buried him and I thought well that's kind of weird like yeah I'm like how you know many years ago but I'm like well wouldn't you at least want to know what happened so I thought that was kind of weird and then from there I'm like well if that's true what else is true but you know that's Pennsylvania is the home of hunting everybody has a gun everybody's loaded you know it's just kind of how there's you know a lot of uh, game heads everywhere like that's just the culture of the area so you know when they told me the story they were kind of like yeah we all have guns we just assumed something happened but I was like okay that's an assumption <laughs> and we were satisfied um, so from that I was like okay that's a really interesting story and if that's true what else can be true about this world so okay. we kind of built the story around the location because I found it so interesting you know so I went home and I remember calling Javier I was like Javi I, I want to make this film you know I think it's like a horror and it's in Pennsylvania and you know and he was like okay let's do it and then we started asking around and people were like no you can't make a feature you can't make a feature and we're like I bet yeah all right, well, then we're not making it with you then. And, you know, finally, um, we found a team that was game. And um, I had a friend, Jess, who ended up writing the script. She's a brilliant writer. I, I wrote a outline and I gave it to her. And I was like, this is what I see happening. And she's so talented. She went and wrote like five different script versions. Oh, my God. And they were all incredible. Oh and we always wish, like, I always say this, I wish we could have made the first script she's ever made. But it was definitely like a million-dollar budget. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh my god we don't have this money Um, a little too ambitious for sure because you know she wanted to have a lot of intrinsic brilliant shadowing mirroring things which all great scripts have but we just didn't have the budget sure and now she works at a you know in production she's like man i wish if i had the experience then that i have now with production i would have been able to write a script that was way more fitted to our budget well hopefully you'll find a way back to each other that would be amazing Uh, we're still great friends and um i'm sure we'll work together again but we you know so that time like she spent a year writing incredible versions of that script and we commissioned her for very little money because we didn't have any um and she just wanted to make a film too. So it was kind of that perfect partnership. And like I said, we're still great friends as we continue to move forward in our careers. And I do hope we work together. Um, and then um, the script was ready and we started a Kickstarter and we went on to get funds for this film. But in the in the process, we found a lot of partners, like like the farm that we shot at. It's called Plow Farms. And it's in Pennsylvania. Right, right, in Plowville. In Plowville. <laughs> and funny enough, like the opening scene of, of Friday the 13th with that, at that barn place it's mm-hmm. almost exactly like the one we had very close in. quarters very dark yeah, yeah it all, also had a second floor it, you know the stairs were similar and it's, it's their oh, i think slaughter. i know what you're talking about yes, yeah yes. it's their slaughter place mm-hmm. for the farm and you know it, it, even that was very similar like we have a scene in the bathroom when you see the feet and the, they're talking yes. you know kind of like girl talk that's also part of of the inspiration from friday the 13th um but we were just happy to be there and in my friends you know Lindsay uh, eshelman is it's her family's farm and she's also in the film Oh, okay. She plays Nicole. Oh, she was great. Yeah, she was great. And I remember when I told her parents, I was like, hey, so we wrote this film and we wanted to shoot here. Can we shoot here? And I remember like her mom and dad sitting there and they're like, 
okay. I don't really think they understood what I'm that sure, meant. I'm sure, because, yeah, the things you do. <laughs> because they're like, sure. And then when we finally showed up with, like, 30 people and we were shooting in the house. And, I mean, they were so gracious because there's so much stuff that happened. Yeah. But we had to literally destroy their living room, number one. For, like, a whole month they couldn't sit and watch oh. TV because we had to look, make it look like, the, you know, it was a closed-down house and yeah. there was nobody living in it. And it's all the same night, right? It all happens the same night. Yeah. So, you know, we had to destroy that and leave the way it was for, like, a month. For and, continuity, oh um, We were, you know, all the crew, we tried to hire as many local hire people as we could Good. just to support the community, yeah. but as well to make our life easier. But at the same time, we actually, whoever wasn't, you know, from was from New York or the close vicinities, they slept in the house with us. So we, we called <laughs> like in it, sleeping bags? In, in basically air mattresses. Okay. We had a step up from the sleeping bags. Good. But we were like, this is basically like a film sweatshop. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. in one in one room in the basement was all the boys. And in one room in the basement was all the girls. Um, That's so, how it gets done. Yeah. So we just, you know, and everybody was game, which was great. Not you know, we had our issues, but mostly everybody was great. Any pranks? Um, no pranks, thank okay. God. I think we were so... So I can slow things down. And we were so tired because there was no sleeping. You know, our team was very... Production-wise was very small. So, I, you know, Javier and I and Lindsay had to, like, double, triple ourselves with everything that we were doing. Like, I was lucky enough that when I started to, like, jump into the directing, they needed to, like, step up for the producing. And, like, it kind of really worked out well. But I couldn't have done it without them because my producing role, you know... I couldn't really help as much as I would want to because I was also directing. So, yeah, that's too much for anybody. Yeah, so you know, I had I was lucky I had a good team, and um, but I you know I remember when I was directing, you know, there's a scene where I have my lingerie and I'm right running and covered in blood around the spawn. Yes, yes. You know, but <laughs> I was wondering about that. What yeah. people don't know is that you know when you direct and you're dressed for a scene, I couldn't put my clothes on because that fake blood is mm-hmm. very sticky. So the moment that I would dress myself, everything would be ruined. So we have to waste time to like set up the blood again. So I basically directed in my underwear for like three days in like 40 degree weather. I was wondering, was it cold? Because very oh, cold. Oh, you poor thing. It snowed the last day that we were there. Like it was so cold. Oh, I would have had no idea. I know. So we were, you know, there, there was a scene where one of our actors dies and he's shivering so much uh-huh. we had to, to stop because I'm like, now you look too alive because you're <laughs> shaking too much, you know? So That's so funny. In this movie, there's a couple moments where they're like, they're straight up breathing and I'm like, oh, come on. I know. It must be hard. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very hard. To play so, a dead body. You know, I remember my friend's mom at some point looked at me and she's like, aren't you going to put some clothes on? <laughs> you know, but I'm like, I want to, I'm working. I can't, you know? So it, it, we had a great anecdotes and great moments. And again, we couldn't have made this film without, you know, the Eshelmans and without the farm and without the community. We'll have people come over and like bring us food and oh. drop some pies. And, you know, and when you are on a budget, like that makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. We made sure that our crew got paid, you know, whatever we could. We wanted everyone to, to be respected and feel like they had a job. Good. Um, but we were very conscious of, of the difficulties. So yes. we wanted everybody to eat well. And, you know, we made sure that there was plenty of food all the time and plenty of warmth and places that they could be warm and rest. And you know, but at the end of the movie, we ended up torching some things. And yes. Yeah, that was also. I mean, interesting. I don't want to spoil anything, but yes, that yeah, was amazing. Yeah, you know what was funny? Like we. It's in we, the trailer, I guess. It's in the trailer. Yeah, so, yeah. we wanted to 
blow up a bus. And we Whoa. had the bus and we were like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. But when you blow up things, like, you know, thing, pieces of that yes. kind of go everywhere. So we needed like a specialist who could do that safely. And that's where we couldn't do it. We couldn't find someone who was like a pyrotechnic specialist who would do it for like a an affordable price. Yeah. And I'm sure we probably couldn't afford that insurance either. You need the fire marshal probably. Well, we had, we had to have that anyways okay. because we had to burn something down. So right. our, our compromise was, why don't we just burn down a building or something? Sure. And I, I will tell you, there were a lot of volunteers saying, you can burn down my house. So in the original script, it was to blow up a bus? A bus. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, that's ambitious. When you watch the film, and like you see that we shoot in the bus mm-hmm. for most of the time. So our idea was to just torch that at the end. Was that just there or was that something you had to get as well? No, we got that donated to us from Eshelman Transport. So okay. we were very lucky to be able to have that. Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who are willing to help you out. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we needed a generator at some point. I remember we didn't have one. And, you know, Lindsay was like, oh, let me get in my car and drive to the next farm over and see if they have one. Let me drive to the next farm. And, and then they did. They're like, oh, yeah, take it. Just bring it back whenever. That's great. You know, which is also so trusting because yeah, I would yeah. be like, who would be like, come These into my kids? house, yeah. take my stuff, bring it back whenever. <laughs> um, so that's the plus from shooting in small towns because everybody's mm-hmm. so excited and so LA. welcoming. Um, we, you know, when you watch the film, there's a lot that happens at a Christmas tree field mm-hmm. and there's a lot of screaming involved because, you know, it's a horror movie. Yeah. So I remember the day after that scene happened, my friend's dad woke up and he's like, you guys, were you at the, the Christmas tree field last night? And we're like, yeah, yeah, we were. He's like, well, listen to this voicemail. And he plays this voicemail and this guy's like, Greg, something is happening at the Christmas tree field and it's not good. There's a lot of screaming. I'm not sure, but you should call the cops. And we were just like laughing hysterical. We're like, oh my God. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Somebody probably drove by. I know, poor guy. (laughs) And was like, something is happening. But, you know, that's also the security of the area. Everybody knows each other and everybody's there for each other. It's it's really something that we don't get in a a major city. Yeah. Um, So my recommendation is whoever's making a movie, try to make it somewhere where it's small and they're excited to have you. Yeah. No, that's something I've uh, realized is a lot of the times these movies, like the smaller your script, like cast-wise and locations, like maybe if there's only two locations and four characters, the more likely it is people will take a chance on yours because it doesn't cost as much. It's all risk. It's all gambling. also, as a first-time filmmaker, make your life easy. Why, you know really it would be don't fantastic. cast kids <laughs> yeah I, I just watched today this short film that i'm a part of and it was so good but then i'm like my god they took such risks there was like seven the cast alone was like 10 people god. five locations and i'm like oh my god this is so much work you know just watching like a 15 minute piece and i'm like oh my god they really went all out like as a filmmaker we were lucky because we had this location so we shot and we wrote the script really targeted to that location um, and from that, we also had three people that we knew we wanted to be on this, you know, in the film, which okay. was Lindsay, Javier, and I. And so we also had a bit more of a restriction of the characters. Like you had to write characters um, that fit our description and in in um, in characters. So. You know, and, but at the same time, I think that having some parameters when it's your first time, it helps. You yeah. know, it all helps. It helps everyone. It helps make a lot of people's jobs easier down the road. Budgeting and scouting and all of that casting. But just be careful who you pick to work with because mm-hmm. we live together for a month, you know, like 24-7. And at some point, it's difficult. Yeah. You know? It's like so being in a relationship. It's, it is a relationship. And it's even, it, the stakes are even higher because when we were shooting, I was like, this is 
506 people's money and plus whoever else is giving us their time and their place and their you know yeah you can't just quit we can't quit and we can't just be like oh whatever it's gonna be what's gonna be like you have to go full on all the way and just like try to make it as best as you can and that can be a motivator too though right and like that kind of gets the fire under your butt when you're not feeling so good well it yes depends no? No? If, you, if you do well <laughs> under pressure and you think stress and fear is a motivator then this is this business is for you um you know it just depends like some people crash under the pressure and we had some people in our production who did mm. both in pre-production and during the shoot and um you have you have to just stay strong you yeah. know i you learn a lot about yourself about yourself and about directing like i you know reading a, a, i read a lot about directors and del toro always says like directing is not what you plan the magic is on the unplanned is the magic happens when the the stuff you didn't expect to happen and that shows how good of a director you are because if you can figure it out on the spot and and find the beauty in that and then later on you know most of the time you see that that's that's the spark that's the stuff that people really enjoy it's having the flexibility yeah but that's what makes a good director because shit's gonna happen you know what i mean like we can't all be stanley kubrick's and have entire films planned out to a t and stuff goes wrong mm -hmm. you know and if you are stanley kubrick and, you, and then stuff go wrong and you shut down your production well all the power to you if you have that money and time but most of us don't no so when that happens you got to be like well one of for instance like in our shoot there's a lake scene and that was happening yeah, overnight yeah, yeah, yeah. and we had that lake but our camera broke down and there was the one day we had to shoot the lake scene and this is 3 a.m and we're in pennsylvania our camera comes from new york city we're calling the guy like oh my god what are we gonna do the camera broke what's happening the crew is wait yeah we're all like what are we gonna do we don't have an extra day we don't have that time how are we gonna fix this so immediately i'm calling the guy and the guy's like i don't know we're trying to figure it out if it's just a pan if we can fix it turns out it was a red and he, you know, he just kind of gave out and red replaced it for the guy so he wasn't even like an issue with with us it was just the camera um and apparently happens or something i don't know but it <laughs> happened at the wrong time <laughs> yeah but at that time like, 3 a.m it was 3 a.m like what are we gonna do like we don't have time to go back to new york city so my dp was like well i have a c300 and it's i don't think we can tell the difference i'm gonna go home right now it was like 20 minutes away okay i'm gonna go get my camera and then we, sh we finished the shoot and we we're like all right so he went you know that was like 40 minutes he went and came back and we were like thinking okay how can we rearrange this what can we shoot what can we not shoot and we had to do a couple of inserts after that night of that scene. And our actress, you know, Haley was amazing because that lake was so smelly. I personally, I wouldn't have known that anything would come up. Because, yeah, that scene, it's, it's seamless. I, who did the editing for it? Um, well, we had Javier definitely helped with some of that process. And I sat with our editor, Daniel Shaw, for almost a whole year. Nice. And we worked through, you know, every single bit of that film. Um, Cause and that can be one of the longest processes. It really was, especially when you know we we only had we shot for three weeks and we had what we had. You did all of that in three weeks. It was fifteen days and one day off, so wow. we shot for sixteen days. Yeah, that's amazing. So you know, having that, we had three takes of everything, and this you know what Daniel and I did was watch every single piece of footage before they caught action and before you know they caught cut to make sure that whatever we had what could we use and how can we make this a, the strongest film possible and then from there we went backwards and it's like okay what do we need to reshoot and we had a couple of reshoot dates um and then go back and like put that into the film and, and try to make the strongest film we could with what we had you know and that's i think key it's like we all want to make the perfect movie we all want to make the next you know oscar winning whatever but your first film is going to suck. And yeah. I remember my friends, you know, I have one friend, uh, Brock Williams, who's a producer, and 
his movies on the shortlist for the Oscars now, and wow. and I'm I'm really hope that that it happens for them. But I was, you know, I remember him telling me very clearly. He's like, you know, you're thinking about it too much. He's like, my first film cost twenty grand. We did it on mini DV, and then he was out in the world. You just gotta finish it. Mm-hmm. And Don't wait. That stuck with me because I was like, okay, twenty thousand mini DV, just finish it. Like <laughs> mine is gonna be a little better than that. And I remember there thinking, you go. yeah, and and I told him that, and he's like, yeah, you will. So stop overthinking it and just get it done, you know. And there were moments that we were discouraged and we were like, oh, this is never going to end. Oh, I bet. And I would, you know, watch a film or have a conversation and be inspired again and, and email the team and be like, come on, team, we can do this. Or there were moments that Javier would have that moment and like share it with the team. Come on, we can do it. Yeah, or, that's that's what I think collaboration is really important for is those moments when you can't be your own cheerleader. And I, I, I certainly get that way. And I feel like it's something that a, this industry has because it's so vulnerable. It's so naked putting this out there something that you spent so much time and so you've you've talked so many other people into spending time on your vision and creating something that you want and now you're showing it to other people it, i i can totally see how there would be those moments that you would need somebody another perspective to help you out and I, for me like watching the film with the audience is so hard for me because I I know I put so much into it. Like my acting is okay because it's <laughs> like it's that's a job. It's my it's my work. You know, like I I'm confident in what I do. But when you create something from nothing to something, and then people are watching, and you're like, oh my god, are they gonna like it? Are they not gonna like it? And if they don't, it's fine. But it's always so hard for me to yeah. watch. I'm you surprised know. you can watch it. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'd be I able don't to. want to. But yeah. then Javier loves watching it with the audience, and he loves that experience. So then I'm like, it always end up staying because I'm like, well, if they're all gonna stay, then I should stay. <laughs> and then I take like long walks to the popcorn vending machine and back, and like, you know. But I, it's weird because there is something different about creating a story from nothing. And like in Don't Look is, is a movie that we completely envisioned. You know, it's not at all reflective of our stories, but what we're working on next very much are. And there's oh, a very okay. personal sense to it. You know, like Scooped, our, our TV show, it's based on Javier's story of, right, of him York. becoming a journalist. And like, there's a lot of there that's the, the people there are based on real people. The stories are based on real stories. And, you know, so th- there's a, th- but that's what makes it universal. Like the more personal, the more universal. So, you know, there's also that power in there of telling a story that means something. Um, but, you know, it's nerve-wracking. Maybe because it's my first feature. Maybe I'm going to get more comfortable as it moves along. But I have another short that's on Amazon Prime. It's called December, and it's doing well. Oh, people, people can catch that? It. It's called December? Yeah, December, and it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, take, take a look. It's only six minutes. We'll so put that a, in the link. Yeah, it's a super quick watch. Uh, it's a drama, so it's a different genre. Um, but it's great. I feel like that's a different film for me because that story is very personal. It's something that um, when I wrote it was so real, and it shows in the film, you know, that how real. And I've, I, it's about heartbreak and I keep whenever I play it like I people come to me and tell me stories about their ex-boyfriends and their ex-girlfriends oh, and how they are like they knew like they went through that and I you know it's funny because now I've listened to so many breakup stories I could write like a like a, a slew of films but it's so funny to have that experience and and that to me was different because it was a you know when I made a, a short I was like oh yeah making a feature is just a longer short it is definitely not true. It is definitely harder. <laughs> sure and seems like a different beast. It's a completely different thing, and you can never be too prepared, and you will never be prepared enough. Just be ready for that, you know. And but I didn't know. I just wanted to like 
be good and you know and um, i think indie horror was the right avenue would you want to ter- uh, return to horror at some point down the road oh i love horror i'm working now on a project called pathosis I'm, okay i'm acting in it i Great. play the female lead and the team is incredible it's we're working with a company called womp stump films uh they did a, a horror called never hike alone it's doing really well um and i'm excited i love the genre and i think it's innovative i think there's there's very few genres that really innovate, and one is porn, which I don't watch, but it's true. They are ahead of the it's game. Always an option. You know, they are ahead of the game. I mean, everything starts there. You know, sex sells. So like VR, for what I hear, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. developing because of that industry, and you know, could do great things. So who knows? And the second one is is horror because we have more of a freedom of telling a story in a different way that doesn't necessarily has to be the 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 format that Hollywood decided that he has to. Yeah, and so, historically, the framework is there for you to stand more of a chance with an indie horror film as a, a newer director. And play, you know, mm-hmm. and play. I think drama is, is not, you know, it doesn't translate to, through cultures, unfortunately. Comedy doesn't translate through cultures. It's very culturally based. Yeah. And, and horror and action does, mm-hmm. and, you know. So it's you have yeah. to decide... Um, horror and action specifically do amazingly overseas right yeah. they're both genres that do really well because it's you know it's more of a universal language and it's less of a of an emotional connection that I think drama and, and comedy have we've you know, even started to receive more international horror films uh, I think Mama was a Mexican horror film or, right yeah 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 and so I'm, I love to see more and more stories that aren't about straight white families right. surviving or whatever yeah in Mexico I mean has a huge horror community and they do very well in what they yeah, do yeah it's George so. A. Romero yeah yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming. I mean, luckily, we are at a time where equality and, and diversity is yes. being, you know, searched. And, and it's seeked. amazing. And um, I want to see more Crazy Rich Asians. I want to see more feature-length films with stories like yeah, I mean, I've never seen. I loved Crazy Rich Asians, <laughs> but I'm like, why do they have to be crazy, beautiful, and rich? Like, I want to see the Stepping movie. Like, I want to see the movie, like, ugly, smart, or we'll ugly, there. dumb Asians or something. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be, because there's this need That's of, very true. like, success and, and lavish and luxury, which is interesting. It's a key thing- that, like, we understand, I guess. It's like, oh, I know luxury, but I don't know what that luxury looks right. like. It's, and, like, safe. And we all want to want that and we all want to see what that's yeah. like so i get i get how that is a hook but at the same time i'm like man i mean the movie was great don't get me wrong no 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 but i understand what you're saying it's a, it's more of a popcorn flick yeah right and now we have in the heights coming out and i'm excited yeah, to see yeah. how that's gonna go but then it's been directed by an asian guy oh really john chu yeah from crazy rich asian so then i think hmm. you know what if it was the opposite what if they got a latino guy to direct an asian movie the community would just not have it that is weird so then i'm like why is it okay in the latino community why is no one talking about that like huh. i want a latino to talk about the latino experience i don't want some asian guy who never been to you know harlem absolutely Harlan like what does that guy know no that was one of the important things on that show Vita that the entire yeah. writing staff and everybody was Latinx or Latina yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean Tanya Saracho does a fantastic job mm-hmm. she personally handpicked every single person that is on that room and in that room and on that show like she's just she she just you know runs a tight ship yeah. and it shows because I think Vita has its issues like any other show but they do something so different and so fresh and I think it's the first time that Latinos are tuning in and yeah. not just the white people like we want to see that, that story like I watched the pilot and he had he was 
definitely spicy, you know, <laughs> you know, beyond the flan, like the flan jokes. But there was a, maybe one too many flan jokes. But it was, you know, it oh, was. the reviews are in. Yeah, it was super spicy though. Like some stuff that happened, and I'm like, that's so funny and so fresh, so different, you know. And I think it's a show that everybody should be watching. Well, my arm's getting tired, so we're going to race toward the end here. Um, <laughs> usually what we like to do is, uh, oh, so really quick, the ending is uh, Pamela Voorhees gets decapitated. Uh, after slapping Alice around, Alice gets an axe and chops off her head, sails out into the middle of Camp Crystal Lake. The police show up and wave to her and say, hey, we're here to rescue you, only for Jason to pop up and get one more final scare. But, oh, that was just a dream. She wakes up in the hospital, and that's the end. Or was it a dream? Or was it? Because he's still out there. Dun, dun, and I guess he comes back in the second one we're gonna ignore all that but um (laughs) so the themes in this movie specifically is that one about parenthood and the idea of like Pamela Voorhees psychotically loves her son kind of like a Norman Bates uh uh what was his mother's name whatever kind of like a Norman Bates relationship with his mother uh but like a little bit backwards instead of her being so overbearing that he loves her enough to kill her this is she loves her son so much so overbearing that she's willing to murder others for revenge like he's gone killing new counselors isn't going to bring him back so she's she's gone um, and so the the writer, Victor Miller, said uh, in an interview taken off of his own website, quote, I still believe the best part of my screenplay was the fact that a mother figure was the serial killer working from a horribly twisted desire to avenge the senseless death of her son, Jason. Jason was dead from the very beginning. He wasn't a he was a victim, not a villain uh, responding to what's happened to Jason and how he has become the villain. Um And so I feel like that kind of speaks to what you've mentioned, the responsibility that you may or may not feel as a Latina woman to uh, reflect people like you on film because, because you recognize the effect that that has on audience members and on society as a whole. Movies give us the movies and TV provide us with like the framework and rubric to determine in society what is normal and how we should treat people. And so I personally, I'm over the moon when I see a multiracial character as the main character in a movie. When I saw Spider-Man into the Mm Spider-Verse and uh, uh, Miles Morales is black and Mexican or black and Puerto Rican, I I thought that was amazing. And the the new lead character in Detective Pikachu is also uh, a black and Asian of some kind. And uh, when I see like gay characters being represented on film and movies. And trans And trans in a way that isn't, that's not important. It's not, oh, they're the gay character. They're the lesbian. They're the trans. It's they're the person who incidentally happens to have be gay or be trans, but that's not important to the story. They're part of the population and they're amazing. And most of the time they're more amazing than the regular, you know, straight. They're not stereotypes. They're not comic relief. And like, God, there were entire movies like I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry and Love Boat and these movies that the whole movie was, oh, isn't it funny that they're gay? Um, And there are TV shows where it's like, oh, isn't it funny that they're Mexican? or oh isn't it funny that they're uh, Asian uh, it's it's this movie takes that responsibility I feel like and even though it's written by a man he chooses to subvert the uh, assumption that women like you said are matronly and caretakers and couldn't hurt a fly yeah I think there's a time to rethink what's regular and what's normal and what's just 
the world. So you, you know? do feel a responsibility, kind of. A hundred percent. I think we all do. Everybody who is out there making I, I some kind does. of art. I mean, everybody, you know, I was having a conversation yesterday with a filmmaker about this, about the fact, you know, we saw on the news recently this MAGA kid harassing a Native American. and But, you know, my problem with that now is, like, everybody's making him famous. His face is on everything. And I'm like, why is that guy not, you know, being going to jail for, for harassment? That's harassment. You know, if I was that Native American guy, I would I've walked into the first precinct and be like, this guy harassed me, arrest him. You know, like, oh, you know, that's an exaggeration, but I'm like, I don't want to make those people famous. I don't want to make their faces known. Uh, there is an upside to that, that, you know, shaming that person publicly in, in the hopes that that's going to change their perception, which it, most of the time it doesn't happen. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a catch-22. But I think we all are responsible for the things that we say. And, you know, I always say that if you are going to make a stand, you got to stand by it, you know, regardless of the consequences. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, and that's why I'm like, for me, like this perception of what's normal and what's not and what's right and what's wrong, it doesn't exist. You know, we're all part of something and we're all in it together. And, you know, I love these inspirational quotes and they always say like, your, your life is also mine and your experience is also mine. And we see that every day. If somebody's having a bad day and they're mean to you, then now you're having a bad day and then you're mean to the next person. And it's just like kind of a, like a chain effect. Yeah. So that really happens. And if you think about that in that sense, you know, in that palpable real life sense. So I, you know, I try to speak clearly and openly about my beliefs but i also sometimes i'm i'm sure i've mishapped said something that wasn't you know clearly stated but there's a difference yeah but there's a difference you know even us as we're having this conversation we're thinking oh why does the killer has to be male we just assume that it is and and, you know in this movie friday the 13th was so groundbreaking at the time because everybody thought that that Mm -hmm. this killer was a male because that's our perspective but in reality was a woman Mm -hmm. wow uh. (laughs) yeah you know so oh that's so different you know because women are nurturers so you know that that's the thing that art does to break grounds but i have to say the next you know i'm just tired of seeing mexicans as as gardeners in a mm-hmm. movie like whenever or gang i see that or drug like, i turn off because it's like unless it's a historical piece unless something that like oh it's a true story of something oh sure that's yeah how it's it a period yeah then it's... yeah you know like narcos like narcos about the drug narcos is great it's great but it's about that that's the story you know that's one thing mm-hmm. versus like let's just make movies and portray latinos this particular way and so so no that raises an interesting idea that i hadn't considered is that like you can pick it you can petition you can uh you know boycott something but it seems like the not best way but maybe one of the quickest ways to enact social change is to make lots of tv shows and movies and stories that normalize the thing that you're looking to to do so in society that uh, if you're looking to make it so trans people are accepted anywhere and can go into the bathroom anywhere then we need more trans tv shows like uh that ryan murphy one um on fx pose or um transparent to a lesser extent that one's right. a little that one's a little dicey because uh it's a lot of family story drama and he's also too. not really trans which is problematic right. um even though there are a number of trans actors in the show the main character himself jeffrey tambor is but not think about when that started at the time it was no. the only show addressing that issue that's why it's so very it's important huge yeah, yeah. and mean, like the, we said before impact. Mm-hmm. yeah the impact was huge when it came to that you know it, it, it's it's difficult times that we're at it's the times that we are finally free to embrace our diversity and our differences, but it's also the time that other people feel like they f- they're free to speak about their their hatred and, and their 
you know, and their prejudices yeah. and, and, you know, it's, it's confusing for, I can imagine being a preteen at this time and trying to figure it out what's oh right God. and what's wrong, you know, um, because that comes from home, mm-hmm. you know, whatever example you have, I feel like so lucky I came from a place like Brazil that I had to, um, learn about poverty and, and struggle and, you know, fight for you, what you want and what you believe in. That must give you a great perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's sure that I wish I was born in, a, in an easy home where everything was fine and you had everything. Who didn't? Um, but, you know, it did teach me a lot and it's a big part of who I am. And I think it makes me a better filmmaker for sure because I never see something. I think, oh, I don't have it. I can't do it. I always think about it. Oh, I don't have it. How can I make it? Or how can I find a way to put it together? Do I really need it anyways? You know, like that's my my thought of process. Um, And I've seen other people that have been more uh, privileged and, you know, lucky who just at the first first wall just gave up. Like, oh, there's a wall. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm just not going to go there. Um, You know, and that's a choice. At the end of the day, I always say life is a choice. I don't have any kids. Do you have any kids? <laughs> well, I have one dog. I consider him <laughs> my kid. So you would do anything for that dog. I would do anything for You Spike. would slaughter a bunch of teenagers at a camp for that dog. If I believed in violence, <laughs> I would. I'm more likely to bake a bunch of cookies for all those kids to forget the issues of their lives. That's the thing. It's like, I, I can't relate to this idea. Like, it's one thing to want to protect a, a, a living child at any cost. Like, I'd right. take a bullet for, like, my sister or something like that. But it's totally different to to take something that is already done and I'm, like, grieving and to take that out on the per- type of people that represent the thing. Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a thing that kind of plays on another thing, which is that um, people with insanity are dangerous right. and evil and will murder all the time. And so Pamela Voorhees could probably benefit from some medication <laughs> yes. and going to a therapist maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, jokes aside, like mental illness is a real problem and we see that a lot in America with the mass shootings and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but yes, it's definitely somebody who is unbalanced and, it and it's represented, some, yeah, some medication of sorts. But, you know, grief is something that messes with people in so many different ways. Yeah. And as we've seen through, you know, these examples in real life and serial killers and other people that it does, it does manifest that way. So it is based somehow in like the real life. That's why I feel that Pamela is a sympathetic villain in that way. You only get to see her for 20 minutes. She's got top billing. Uh, Pamela Voorhees is played by uh, Betsy Palmer, who was apparently a prolific soap opera actress at the time. So people would have recognized her, but she's only in it at the end. And we get like, so much pathos in like two lines of dialogue. She just barrels out. Um, I, I worked here. My son died. Uh, you killed him. You killed him. Um, but I think it paints her sympathetically because she is just a grieving mother who didn't quite make it to acceptance. She's stuck right. in bargaining maybe. Whereas, I mean, the fact that she's still listening to her, her yeah, kid's voice. A I little mean, bit that's... of... That's disassociative identity. Yeah. Right. So that's huge too. When it talks about her actual issues as a murderer, you know, it's funny cause I'm, you know, I'm kind of fascinated about people who do murder, you know, like documentaries and stuff oh, like yes. that. So I am always like, I think forensic science is probably groundbreaking. And one of the things that changed, you know, 
the, the, the course of, of criminology in general. But I'm always fascinated because I'm like, what drives people to really cross that line? And like, how, how does that manifest, you know? Yeah. And where, where were there signs, you know? And, and horror I, is a great way to a great get way a key into it. that. I yeah, watched yeah. one documentary and, and there's a tip for whoever's making a movie. And it was, uh, this documentary showed the, the story of, of people who killed their families mm-hmm. through their social media only. So throughout the entire film, you only learn about these people through their own social media. So That's every single yeah, every single shot of that film was their Facebook, their Instagram, their Twitter, photos that they've posted with the, obviously the narration. And it was so interesting to see because what they're trying to discover is like, can you tell? Can you know when there's something wrong? Can you figure it out? What's that if, called? What's the documentary? I have to remember. That I don't great. remember the name, but it was it was so great. Okay, yeah, you'll have and to let I, me know. Yeah, I wonder if it was. I I don't know. I don't remember where I watched it, but uh, what what platform but i remember at the end of that thinking you just don't never know you see a guy who posts on facebook like oh i'm so lucky with a picture of his wife and two kids and then he ends up you know a week later killing all of them including yeah. his eight month pregnant wife you know and it's like no, how you know where are the signs like where are the signs that did we miss something i think it's the one thing people always ask but when you look at those those clear posts and those things like you don't know you don't know if there's something wrong with someone yeah you it's know. kind of like suicide, uh, too. It's really right. hard to tell when people are being serious or when they're... And that's why it's like it's a good rule of thumb to always take any red flag as 100% serious. Right. And for people out there who are suffering, who need help, there are ways, you mm-hmm. know, go online, find a resource. I know it's hard when, you, when you're feeling depressed. Depression is a real yeah, problem. Yeah, it's a real shame. The suicide hotline is like 18 digits. It's unfortunate, but yeah. Right. By the time you get to it, something already <laughs> happened. But, um, they killed a snake in this movie. I thought that was horrible. That snake scene where it comes in, that was a real snake that they chopped up with a machete. And the thing on IMDb said that the owner of the snake was crying offset. <laughs> and I thought, what did they say to the snake owner? Well, they didn't know that this, this exactly. snake was going to be murdered. Hey, buddy, can we, can we see your snake in this scene really quick? We promise we'll give it right back. Um, in yeah, fact, we, we got two snakes. We had a, <laughs> a pig in our film in Don't Look. And uh, if when you watch it, you'll see it. it's kind of hanging there. Mm-hmm. We really debated whether or not we wanted to use a real animal but we actually ended up feeding 200 people with that pig afterwards oh, yeah oh, great. so we made a big cookout we Something actually got, got the community no we would never do that if you would went to waste to waste but we actually make made it into a community thank you we brought everybody from the area who was around and who'd like to come and we did a nice little bake-off and um yeah, it was, it was a nice way to give back to the community. That's amazing. Well, last but not least, we'd like to talk about uh, our rating for the movie. We like to rate the movie that we watch on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best based on whatever you want under the sun. Luciana, what would you think of Friday the 13th? Always a five. Always five? You gave it five thumbs? Oh, yeah. How come? I love it. I think it's, you know, it's the birth of a genre. How wrong can you go? And um, it started the idea of uh, having sequels Mm -hmm, mm because it's open-ended. That was also something new. And the fact that the the killer was a woman. I mean, we still now, you know, I think women killers are still considered hysterical. They're not like smart, calculated killers. I can't think of one and that's... Yeah, but I guess we'll get there, you know. But at the same time, it it did break grounds for people like me who came after and was able to just make something out of nothing. That's true, yeah. Um, Oh, and so traditionally, we will assign our thumbs to characters in the movie. So who are you going to give your five thumbs to? It's a tough one. (laughs) You can give them all to one character or you can spread them out as you like. 
Well, I give it to the killer. To Pamela? I think all Pamela deserves it. She's probably collecting them from all the teens throughout the movie. Yeah, she <laughs> deserves it. I feel like that that was, especially if she was a soap star, I'm sure she, you know, that brought the audience in at the time. And um, it's nice to see a woman spearheading anything. Yeah. Well, Friday the 13th came out in 1980, and I'm so glad that you picked this movie because I feel like I, I thought I had seen it all the way through, but I guess I'd missed some stuff because there were some wonderful moments in this. Um, some dips in like the middle, like toward the end, right before the last person dies, it kind of dips down, and I start, I'll be honest, I started to nod off a little bit. I didn't sleep, but I started to <laughs> nod off and had to rewind a couple of times. Um, so uh, it, it it didn't keep my interest the whole time, but as uh, a catalyst to the slasher genre, it's amazing. It's up there with Halloween, and it's up there with A Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's a classic, even if Jason isn't in the original. That said, I'm going to give Friday the 13th four thumbs just four that's okay uh, it's not perfect uh the last movie i gave five thumbs to was uh, society have you seen society i haven't oh that's a gross one i love that one <laughs> um and my four thumbs are going to go to i'm going to give one of them to uh bill one of the kids played by bill brown played by harry crosby the third being Cro- or no ben Cro- yeah, Bing Crosby's son, um, because he plays classical guitar in that one scene, and so he's probably going to need that thumb. Uh, I'm going to give the Good other point. two thumbs to Ralph, so that he can t- tell people who's got two thumbs and is totally nuts, this guy. <laughs> and finally, I'll give the last one to Jason himself, uh, played by Ari Lehman, a character that originally wasn't even going to be in the movie. This actor muscled his way in and got to be Jason himself. Uh, yeah. So that's Friday the 13th. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about uh, Don't Look? Did you want to mention those festival dates? Or I guess those are still up in the air. Yeah, they're still pending. Okay. I would just say please keep checking our social media. And once it's out there, do watch it. Give us as many thumbs as you'd like, you know. Uh, but we hope you watch it. Yeah. We'll be following you along and we'll see how well that does in May. Yes. We always say that our film is the little engine that could. So we're still out there. <laughs> well, we think it you along. can. We think you can. <laughs> Thank you. Stay scary out there. A teeny tiny Ben Kingsley.